Well, hey there, Cove Church. Uh, great to have you. Welcome, or maybe welcome back to some of you. Uh, my name is Brandon. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors on staff. And we are in week three of our series, Balance, which is a series on money. And so if you're kind of parachuting in week three, week one, we talked about the idea of ownership. When we understand ownership, um, we, we understand generosity at a different level. Week two, Pastor Aaron walked us through the idea of trust. And so my prayer is that something that I say uh, today will just allow you to take one more small step or maybe a couple of big steps uh, along this journey that you are on with, with Jesus. And so what I want to do today, three things. Number one, I want to share two principles from scripture. Uh, and then number two, I want to give us a big idea. And then number three, I want to um, share a few stories. Uh, I'm going to narrate a story from scripture. I'm going to share a personal story. And then I'm going to share a story with permission from a friend of mine to close us out. Before we go there, uh, church, I, I want to share some statistics with you. And uh, if you're not a Christ follower, these might be a little appalling. They're probably going to be appalling to us as Christ followers as well. But we're going to kind of air, we're going to tell on ourselves. We're going to air our dirty laundry, and hopefully that doesn't repulse you. Uh, hopefully that conversely would encourage you to step up to the edge, you know, and just say, hey, these guys are being honest, and at least they're being honest with themselves and honest with the rest of us. So I pulled these stats from a website called Nonprofit Source. We'll start with the good news and we'll move to the bad news. There's a little bit of good news and unfortunately quite a bit of bad news. News. Good news, 77% of those who tithe give 11 to 20% or more of their income, far more than the baseline 10%. That's pretty cool. So um, more than three quarters of the people who actually do tithe, they, they, they give more than that. Okay, we're going to, that's about the end of the good news. We'll go to the bad news. 37% of people who attend church every week and identify themselves as evangelical don't give any money to their church. Tithers make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. Church, how can that be? Ten, only 10 to 25%. Only 5% of the U.S. tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. Finally, this one, Christians are only giving uh, at a 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression they gave at 3 .3, a 3.3% capita rate. Are you telling me that the, the Christ followers in the Great Depression gave more than we're giving today? So I think, church, that we can only surmise one of three things. Uh, number one, these Christ followers, uh, Christ followers throughout the U.S. haven't really been taught, you, you know, gone through kind of a, a biblical study, how their money relates to Jesus, generosity, that sort of thing. Or number two, um, they have and don't care. It's a possibility. Uh, maybe another possibility is this. They have, they do care, but have just simply made a decision, a, a conscious choice that um, they're going to kind of ignore, uh, not really follow the scriptural principles uh, when it comes to their money and resources and finances. So again, Cove Church, if, if the Bible has a lot to say about our resources and money, if Jesus had a lot to say about generosity and money and um, what, you know, what we even do with our time, and he does, both do, the Bible and Jesus. And if the statistics seem to indicate that Christ followers are, are not really um, living with this understanding of ownership that we talked about in week one and trust that we talked about in week two, it's critical that we together as a church family really wrestle with this idea of generosity and stewardship and our resources. Okay, so, so two principles. Principle number one, we're going to call this the principle of first. And 
Uh, as we talked about in week one, Jesus really does have a lot to say about resources and stewardship and our money and where our heart is, but it, it, it really is, is much deeper than just our resources and our money. So uh, we're gonna go back to the Old Testament, the law, uh, Exodus 13. So this is the life of Moses. The, the law was given through Moses. And the Bible says this in Exodus 13, one and two, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man, so human beings and of beast. God said to Moses is mine. We're going to come back to that phrase is mine here in just a second. We skip down a few verses to verses 13 and 14. If you have your Bible open on your phone or um, hard copy. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Church, uh, I love that God inserts that there. When our kids come along in, in Moses' day and they're like, mom, dad, why are you killing the firstborn of the animal? Right, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. We don't have a second or a third. It's the firstborn with no guarantee. What, you know, what if this animal you know, miscarries from here on out? What if this animal dies? You're gonna sacrifice the first one? Why is that? That doesn't make any sense. And they would turn to their son or daughter and see some of this is your testimony. You would say, by a strong hand, a mighty hand, God delivered me. And so I know that this is kind of Old Testament-y, uh, but I want us to notice a few things with this. Everything in this book, church, everything in this book points to Jesus. And so when we're reading the Old Testament and we see um, something or someone that kind of reminds us of Jesus, a deliverer or a king, maybe King David or or Joshua or you know, Moses as a deliverer, that we would call that in kind of biblical terms, biblical study terms, a foreshadowing of Jesus, kind of a, a projecting of, of Jesus. And, and that person, especially people, would become what we would call a type of Christ. And so a lens that will help us as we're, because we're bouncing back and forth between the Old Testament and the New. As we're reading the Old Testament especially, one of the things that we get to ask, and hopefully this will help you in all of your, your biblical studies, uh, we use the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna use the language of the cross. When we look at the cross, we get to take from the Old Testament, as we move it into the New Testament, what stops at the cross, what makes it through the cross, and then what makes it through the cross but maybe change. Let me give you a couple of examples. We talked in week one about murder, right? Did that make it through the cross or did that stop at the cross? We get to murder people today. No, no, we don't get to murder people today. That made it through the cross, but it seemed to make it through the cross and change a bit because Jesus, he tweaked it. He gave a new standard, right? Not only just outwardly in terms of murder, but we can hold murderous thoughts in our heart toward people. Adultery, same thing. Um, how about this one? The idea of marking your body or tattooing your body is right next to, you know, don't shave your beard in the Old Testament. Did that make it through the cross? Did that stop at the cross? I probably could make a biblical case that probably stopped, you know, at the cross. We have lots of people at Cove Church who, you know, men who shave their beard. So, uh, 
And so what I, what I want to outline is the principle of first, and you get to decide whether this principle of first that, that, that we just read and we're going to outline made it through the cross, did it stop at the cross, or did it go through the cross and change? God said to Moses, he said, listen, the firstborn uh, of, of both human beings and animal is mine. And that we, I said we would come back to that phrase, is mine. Um, it, I, I can't emphasize enough in the original language, the Hebrew there, how strong that word is. It's as if God grabs Moses by the shoulders and he says, listen, if, if you remember nothing else that I'm telling you right now, you have to remember this. That animal right there, that firstborn human being does not belong to you. It doesn't belong to the children of Israel. It's mine. Very exclamation point. Very strong language. The idea of maybe a lamb and a donkey. Pastor Brandon, what is this about? If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find lists of clean animals and unclean animals. And um, God says, listen, if it's unclean, you need to redeem it with the life of a clean animal. Uh, and, and, then, and then he says, uh, if, if you choose not to, you need to break, it, break its neck. In other words, there's gonna be a sacrifice one way or another. You're, you're gonna lose it either way. He says, of all the firstborn, they need to be redeemed with the sacrifice of a clean animal. Notice, friends, notice that he doesn't say, okay, wait until you kind of have a flock, right? A, a, a cash, a bank account. Um, he doesn't say, wait, wait until you're, you, you, know, you have some guarantees and, and you have some, some control over it. He says, no, it's the firstborn. And then he goes on, if you, if you read this in context and throughout the Old Testament, he goes on to the farmers. Maybe, maybe they, they don't raise animals, but they farm a piece of land. He says, listen, the, the first fruit of your crops, both in order and in quality, it belongs to me. Notice that he doesn't say, hey, wait until you're assured that this is going to be a bumper crop and you got plenty of food on the table and, you know, um, food stored up for you and your family. He said, it's the first, it's the first of the harvest in terms of um, sequence and the best of your crop. This church is the principle of first. There's a couple of things that God cannot do. And that's a weird statement because he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But I think you'll probably agree with me on this. He, he can't really be second, right? We, we may choose to place him second in our lives, but it doesn't mean he's fallen off his throne and he's second in the universe. He will forever and always have the preeminence. So the principle of first is that the first one redeems the rest. You might want to just write that down. The first redeems the rest. And you might say at this point, Pastor Brandon, this is, this is why I don't like the Old Testament. How selfish, how narcissistic of God where he would come along to maybe someone who is poor or you know, um, doesn't have a second or a third animal or any, any savings or guarantees and demand the first, what is that about? Cope Church, I'm gonna go back to something we said in week one, which is why we started with it in week one. God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. Do you really think that God needs that little lamb? <laughs> Do you really think that God needs the first fruit of the harvest to sustain himself? He's hungry. Well, no. Okay, then it has to be about something else. God doesn't want something from you. He, he doesn't really need anything from us. He wants something for us. So, okay, Brandon, what, what does this really have to do 
uh, with the New Testament. And so God sets up a system, Cove Church. He sets up a system whereby if we'll trust him with our first, with our very best, which requires huge faith. Can you imagine Moses now going to the children of Israel and say, all right, here's the deal. Here's a standard. It's the firstborn. Wait, why can't it be the second or third or fourthborn? Why, why can't we you know, kind of build up a savings account a little bit so we have some assurances? It takes tremendous faith. He promises that the rest will be redeemed. Now, what, what does this have to do with Jesus? Let me ask you a question. A couple of questions. Were you and I born clean or unclean? We're born unclean. Just ask anyone who's raised a two-year-old, right? Was Jesus born clean or unclean? Clean. So here it is. The clean, Jesus, was sacrificed so that the unclean, us, could be redeemed. The consecration of the firstborn, the first fruit redeems the rest. God's one and only son, John 3, 16, the firstborn was sacrificed so that we, the unclean, could be redeemed. So church, the principle of first encompasses our time, our, our attention, our worship, our day, not just our money. If we will give of our, the first fruit of our lives, I believe the, the principle of first says this, that the rest somehow, some way will be redeemed. There's a story that um, Bill Hybels, Pastor Bill, told some time ago of, of two guys, uh, Bill and Ted, who are friends. They attend the same church. It was probably a couple of guys in his church when he was pastoring. <laughs> and um, he said these two guys heard all the same sermons. And one day Bill decided, uh, he, he listened to a message. They both heard the same message on giving and this idea of tithing. And he, and, you know, he, he learned that the, the, the idea of, of um Tithing means a tenth, so he, so he chose to give a tenth of his income. He just, he just dove right in and um, he looked at his budget. He looked at his um, retirement projection and, and it, it didn't add up. It didn't add up to give away a 10% of his income and live on 90%, but he decided that he wanted to do it. He, he, he grabbed the idea of ownership week one. He was choosing to trust God week two and he dove in. His friend Ted chose just the opposite, hearing the same messages on giving and generosity. Uh, he also added up his retirement and his budget, and he decided that he needed to live on 100% of his income and uh, that he would he love God, but he just decided, I'm going to give to God when I can and or when I want. Now, here's the deal. Bill and Ted are friends. They talk about this. They banter back and forth and they both think the other is crazy. They both think the other is a fool. And Pastor Bill, as he's sharing this story, uh, gives this, this highly theological application question. He says this, which fool are you going to be? Now, listen, friends, I'm, I'm not calling anyone a fool. I'm maybe calling myself a fool. I've, 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 when it comes to generosity and giving, I've been a fool many times in my life. So I want to stop and answer a question that probably has been bubbling up in your heart uh, the first you know, couple of weeks of this message series. And I get this question a lot. Um, I will get it before the series is out, I'm certain, sometime after the series, multiple times this year when it comes to giving and generosity. And it goes like this, Pastor Brandon, you know, um, should I be giving or does God expect me to give when it's not adding up? 
when the budget's not adding up, when I can't make ends meet, when, you know, when I'm in debt and I'm, I'm trying to claw my way out of debt. Um, I, I want to give you my answer to that. I don't know that every pastor would agree with me, but I, but I want to give you a straight answer. And I'm going to borrow a little bit from Dave Ramsey. Before I do that, it's, it's important to know that uh, that comes in a lot of different flavors. Uh, there are those who come genuinely, honestly, they want to know because they're going to act on whatever I, you know, whatever I say. And they're going to put legs of faith to that. There are others who come to me and they ask that question because they, they want a certain answer. <laughs> they want something that will allow them to skirt around this idea of giving and generosity, maybe the tithe. Let's assume the best in the person asking the question. They really want to know because they're, they're going to act on it. Two things. Number one, Ramsey, Dave Ramsey would say this. He's a financial peace university um, guru. He would say, if you, if you can't live really uh, on 90% of your income, you're likely not going to live well and steward well 100% of your income. That's number one. Number two, the Bible really doesn't qualify the invitation to generosity. The Bible doesn't say, in other words, hey, wait until everything is, you know, pencils out on paper for you. Wait until retirement pencils, your monthly budget pencils, wait until you're out of debt. It doesn't qualify it that way. It just, the Bible invites us, God invites us to trust him with our resources. And so my answer is this, because I believe so strongly in these principles, the, the one that I, that I just outlined for you, the principle of first, that, that the principle of first redeems the rest and the principle that I'm about to share with you. I believe this, you'll never go wrong putting God first. Whatever comes in, look to God, separate that first and then work to live on the rest. You'll never, I've never, church, I've been at it for 23 years now pastoring, I have not one time had someone come to me and say, Pastor Brandon, I am so bummed that I started living generously and giving to God. I'm mad. You might as well just, you know, taking a blowtorch to my financial situation. <laughs> you, you know, I'm, I'm full of regret. In fact, I'm furious that I started giving. I've never had that conversation. And yet I've had, I can't even tell you how many conversations I've had with people conversely who've come to me and said this, Brandon, I, I decided to shift my weight week one, to step out on the wire. And I was afraid. I didn't know if I could. You know, the budget didn't seem to add up. I, I didn't, it, it didn't make sense to, you know, not live on 100% of my income. But I did it anyway. I, 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 I subscribed to the, the idea of ownership. I came to terms with who owns it all. I decided to trust God. And I don't know how, but it continues to add up. They'll get four months down the road. I, I'm actually, I'm getting out of debt faster than, than I was a year ago or two years ago. I don't know why, but I have extra in my account. I don't know why, but there's, there's always food in the fridge. I can't tell you how many times. I, in fact, I've had that conversation a couple of times already in this series, and we're only two weeks in. Okay, church, I want to move to the, to the second principle and then we're going to wind down. It's the principle of resupply. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to narrate a story out of 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. I'm going to tell the story. Pastor Brian, can you, can you do that? Is that even legal? Yes, we, um, it, it, the, <laughs> we take the Bible as it comes to us. You can open up your Bibles there on, you know, on your phone or hard copy and make sure I'm telling you the truth. But I want to narrate this story. It's the widow of Zarephath. It's known as the widow of Zarephath. And that, that, that's not her name. That's where she's from. And that, that town name, Zarephath, means refinery. It's a crucible. Uh, it's refinement. It, the picture is a goldsmith that would 
refined gold. And I want you to think about that in light of what we talked about in week one as the, the, the tithe or the 10th part being a bit of a heart test for the believer. The story goes like this. There's the famine in the land. And um, this, this widow, she's a single mom. She has a son. Uh, in today's scenario, uh, today's setting, that would be very difficult. That would be exceedingly difficult, probably even insurmountable in her day. Uh, she's come to this startling, sobering realization that she has one meal left and her and her son, she's got one jar of oil, one jar of meal, the Bible says, and she's gathering sticks. She's going to go make one last meal and then her and her son are going, going to go in the back room, basically lay down and die. Uh, not too far away is the man of God, Elijah, a rock star prophet, uh, one whom God has used in mighty ways. But he's also in the middle of this um, famine. And I want to pause right there just for a second. Many times, friends, with the poison of comparison, we can look at our lives and we can say, God loves me, but he loves and provides for that person over there, maybe because they're more spiritual or, you know, they're, they're the pastor, as if they do not suffer. We have to be very, very careful, friends. Both of them are the, the poison of comparison. I don't know if it ever works out in our lives. Elijah is suffering. This woman and her son are suffering. They're going to die. And so Elijah shows up and, and uh, he sees her gathering sticks and he says, hey, you know, my name's Elijah. And I uh, just want to let you know that God sent me here. And he said, I'm moving in with you. To which the woman says, well, Today's your lucky day because I'm gathering sticks, gonna go home, make a fire, bake one last you know, loaf of bread, meal for me and my son. We're gonna go in the back room, lay down and die, and you will have the run of the house. Have fun. <laughs> and uh, Elijah says this, oh yeah, oh yeah. In response to the meal that you just mentioned, God also told me uh, not only that I'm supposed to move in with you, but you're actually supposed to bake that meal for me. Thanks for your hospitality. Uh, Friends, think about this, this widow for a second. A single mom doesn't know this guy. Maybe you've heard some things about some weird prophet bumping around in the area. Who knows? She has one meal left and all she has to go on is God told me. And then Elijah threw in this little kind of tagline. He says, but, but don't worry. It's life and death. Don't worry. God said that if you will do that for me, that jar of oil will not run dry and that jar of meal will not run dry. Friends, are you buying it? No guarantees of resupply. This is life and death, and all you're giving me is God told me. So I want to pause right here, and I want to, I want to suggest this. I want you to consider this. Every time, friends, every time you and I are con uh, confronted with the idea to give or generosity, to give of ourselves, especially our finances, but our time and our talent, all of it. We stand in the place of the widow of Zarephath, this single mom in, in a life and death situation, if you will. And here's, here's what I mean by that. When we're confronted, maybe a friend in need, um, you know, you know, maybe we hear of our harvest offering to reach further into our community or, or maybe our future and a hope offering to steward better our, you know, our building and our resources that we have here. Maybe we hear of a missionary who's in need and we, you know, we want to give or a, or a ministry in town. We stand in the place of the widow of Zarephath and, and, and we want to shift our weight. We want to go to move. But there's, there's a side of our brain that says, what if God doesn't show up? 
What if God doesn't resupply? What, what if heaven doesn't hear me and God doesn't make good on his promise? What if he doesn't resupply and take care of me? Friends, if we really understood this principle of resupply, I think all of us, we would, we would be far more generous than the statistics that I read early on bear out. I want to share a couple of stories. Friends, let me, let me just say this. We could land in a place of ownership if we're not careful. Decide who owns it all. We could decide God owns it all. But we could still give begrudgingly. Okay, I get that he owns it all. But then when we layer in trust and we adopt trust, and then when, when we understand the principle of the first, that the first redeems the rest, and then when we understand this principle of resupply, that hand begins to open. We're like, God, ask what you want, because I trust you to resupply it. A couple of stories, a personal story, and a story from a friend. Uh, some of you know this, most of you know this. My wife and I planted a church in Vancouver, Washington. We were there for about 10 years. Church is still going today. A wonderful pastor, family who are there, and uh, it's a great church, wonderful church. Um, in the beginning, it was a little rough and tumble. Church planting is, is a little rough and tumble process. I was working two jobs, three jobs at, at different times. We were struggling to make ends meet. I had two kids, one that was becoming a teenager. And um, the budget wasn't adding up. We were continuing to give, but the budget wasn't adding up. And there was a whole lot more month at the end of the money. We ran out of laundry soap. This may sound silly to some, but it's our story. And um, Joy, it, it was kind of the liquid laundry soap that has kind of that bubble top tap and you, you know, put the little cup underneath it, dispense it, and then onto your clothes, right? It got to the point where Joy was having to rock it forward. And then Joy would have, you know, me or one of the kids kind of hold it up and it was just this fine little stream to get as much as she could out of it. My wife doesn't freak out. She doesn't react much. She trusts the Lord. And she understands the idea of, of resupply. She understands the promises of God. She understands the idea of generosity and God taking care of his kids. And so she prayed. And it might sound like a silly prayer to you, but she said, God, would you, we can't afford the laundry soap. Would you just stretch? I don't know what else to do other than pray. Would you stretch this laundry soap? We, we probably need another two weeks and we're basically out. And she got another load and another load and another load and another load, and I would hear her in the laundry room giggling and laughing. What are you laughing about? Oh, just this silly prayer I prayed about the laundry soap and God multiplying the laundry soap, and he has. I have a friend, his name's Randy, I called Randy, uh, and, and I asked him if I could share the story, but I also wanted to get the details just right. Randy was working with, uh, doing some missions work with a, a, a wonderful missionary organization called YWAM. For those of you unfamiliar, it's, a, it's an acronym that means Youth with a Mission. Great organization. 1,500 students from around the country uh, descended in a place called Lacey, Washington, I think to just kind of do some pre-missions work there, and then they broke into these cohorts. Randy took a cohort of 54 students down to Tijuana, Mexico to do a missions trip. One night at a, um, a church service, this man gets saved. 
And he's so, he's just so humbled and so thrilled at what God's done in his life. He invites the entire team over of 54 people to his house. Dirt fuller, blue tarp, maybe 12 by 12, little house. So a few of them inside, most of them spilling out onto the streets. The guy says this to Randy and to the team who could actually fit in the house. He said this, I heard somewhere in the Bible that God multiplies bread and fish. And I'm going to trust him to do that tonight. To which he pulls out a nine inch saucepan and dumps two inches of chili in the bottom of this nine inch saucepan. Randy, Randy, by his own admission, has like zero faith for five loaves and two fish type of scenario here. But this guy, this brand new believer is full of faith. He doesn't even know where it's at in the Bible. <laughs> Probably couldn't even tell the story. He just heard bits and pieces of it. 54 people. He, scoop, he heats it up. He scoops out a bowl of chili to which Randy and his team are like, you know, they're, they're making signals to one another. Don't take, you know, big scoops. So they kind of, kind of dip it in and kind of, you know, taste it and pass the bowl on to the next person. And, you know, someone just say, hey, you know, I'm allergic or, you know, whatever. They're just trying to be as gracious as they can. Well, it gets to the outside. You got, you know, all the big football players and mostly, you know, guys outside or whatever. They grab the chili. Ah, it's chili. And they, and they eat it up. They send it back in. He makes another bowl. Grabs a bowl, passes it around. It gets out, you know, outside of these guys. The ones inside know what's going on. They're trying to be real careful. The guys outside, they don't know what's going on. The, you know, they didn't get the memo. So they're just like, hey, thanks for the second bowl of chili. And another bowl and another bowl and another bowl of chili and another bowl. When they were done, friends, Randy told me this. He found out that some of the guys in his group, because they, they didn't get the memo, you know, outside or out on the street or whatever they were doing, had five bowls of chili apiece. Nine inch saucepan, two inches of chili. When it was all said and done, they did their best to calculate it. And, and as, as far as he could tell, what, what God did that night with two inches of chili in the bottom of that saucepan is to create about two and a half of those huge stainless steel um, culinary pots that you would find in a commercial kitchen. Those students were so moved by that. He said, Brandon, out of those 54 students that were with me, on that missions trip, 27 of them went into full-time ministry because they saw in real time the God of resupply. It made such an indelible impact on their hearts. So, friends, what, what's, what's the rest of the story with the widow of Zarephath? She still, we, we left her standing there trying to, trying to calculate what the prophet was saying to her. Is she going to give her last meal the one that she needs to survive maybe another day or two with her son. Is she going to give it to the prophet? The Bible says this. I'm going to read it from the message, verses 15 and 16. And she went right off and did it. Just as Elijah asked. And it turned out, as he said, daily food for her and her family. Listen to this. The jar of meal didn't run out and the bottle of oil didn't become empty. God's promise fulfilled to the letter exactly as Elijah had delivered it. So Cove Church, the reality is uh, we're left with a choice today. Uh, we, we, we stand in, in the shoes of this widow of Zarephath. What will our decision be? It seems so foolish for her to, to give her last meal to the prophet. It seems so foolish for Moses with the firstborn to say, okay, got it. No problem. It seems so foolish for Joy to pray that silly prayer over the laundry soap. 
seems so foolish for the man in Tijuana, Mexico to pour two inches of chili in the bottom of a tiny saucepan and think he's going to be able to feed 54 people. And yet in all these stories, we find the God of resupply. Cove Church, here's the question, maybe one application question. How will you grapple with the principle of resupply? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are indeed the God who continues to invite us to raise our five loaves and two fish, the five loaves and two fish of our lives, whatever that is, where we feel like we we don't have enough. It's just a little lunch. It's two inches of chili in the bottom of a saucepan. And yet you beckon us, you invite us, even Malachi 3, to test you. That if we will just shift our weight from week one and to step out on the wire, that you would redeem the rest and you would resupply us. Lord, we choose today to trust you, the God of resupply. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, Cope Church. Have a great day.